On this week's 51%, hear from a longtime Capitol Hill reporter on women reshaping Congress. She followed them in 2019. In Congress, I think you see the impact of these women in ways that are small but meaningful, um, particularly in the types of legislation, um, the types of um, issues that they choose to promote. I'm Allison Dunn, and this is 51%. When I'm on a mission, I rebuke my condition. If you're a strong female, you don't need permission. Veteran New York Times Capitol Hill reporter Jennifer Steinhauer followed the women who, in 2018, were elected as the first representations of different ages, races, and religions in Congress. The result is her book, The First, the inside story of the women reshaping Congress. She had insider access in the Capitol and followed these women, including representatives of the squad, such as Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and Rashida Tlaib, closely for their first year, interviewing them and their staff and colleagues on and around the House floor, reporting on committee meetings, and visiting them in their homes. I spoke with Steinhauer about her book, as well as the new Congress for 2021, starting with her take on whether all the attention on AOC was warranted. Well, I I really like to um, distinguish from people when it comes to um, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, AOC, the difference between having political power um, in the Democratic Party um, and in American life, if you will, as opposed to having power within Congress. Um, so I would say there was um, a pretty um, big inverse relationship in the sense that she immediately had power in the, within the party. We saw um, all the Democrats who were running for the White House um, in 2020 sort of, sort of respond to her, you know, make a, make a point or not a point to get on board with the New Green Deal and things. And she certainly stood for, she became, in a sense, um, the titular head of the progressive end of the party. At the same time, that didn't um, hold a lot of power when it came to legislation. She wasn't on the most important committees because of her lack of seniority, because she had early out of the gate kind of threatened primary challenges to other Democrats that made her a bit unpopular with her colleagues. And relationships are very important when it comes to putting legislation together. Um, and she wasn't somebody who um, spent a lot of time, generally speaking, uh, outside of obviously the New Green Deal, which really barely got a hearing, really working on legislation, the type of legislation that came to the floor. There were a lot of other freshmen who actually were more impactful in those areas. And maybe you could expand on that. That's, that's quite interesting. Yeah, I mean, it, um, I'll give you an example of sort of almost the, the corollary to that. I look at Lauren Underwood. She um, was a first. She was the youngest person, the first female, and the first person of color to win her seat um, in the Chicago suburbs in Illinois. And she kind of just put her head down and focused on legislation. She was particularly interested in health care legislation. And she was very hands-on in her bill writing, you know, um, as you would imagine, Members of Congress have staff who work on the actual drafting of bills. She was very hands-on about that, and she got quite a fill, quite a bit, um, quite a number of her bills uh, that she worked on or co-sponsored uh, passed. And that was sort of what she what she was focused on. Um, some people are more focused on making sure that they're you know servicing their districts. There's always some mix, 
But there were other people who were um, extremely active on their committees and the, the, the law writing process. I would say one thing um, where you saw AOC make her mark on the Hill was an oversight, which are hearings where you're bringing in members of the administration, but also other folks in the private sector and so forth, and questioning them, grilling them on what's going on. And she was always very prepared for that, and she asked really good questions, and she asked good questions. And Michael Cohen even, um, you know, uh, the former uh, number two for the big-time aide um, to Donald Trump, she got interesting things out of him about Donald Trump's tax situation, for example. So she was really good at questioning witnesses and hearings. But when it came to kind of the day-to-day grind of lawmaking, there were other people whose roles were much more significant. To what do you attribute that? I just think she's more interested in politics than lawmaking. I just think, and there's a lot of people like that, you know, they feel like they have more power, more influence outside the tent. Um, They um, are busy working on trying to influence elections. They uh, are trying to push... um, the direction of the party. Um, they're spending a lot of time doing national media, going on TV. Uh, they're just doing, they're just making other things a priority. Um, and obviously, she was highly in demand um, in all those, in all those circles, particularly um, among progressives uh, who wanted her imprimatur when they were running for office. So let's let's kind of fast forward to now, where we had another historic election. What did you see first wise uh, this time around, and how does that impact the first from 2018? Well, one thing that I think was very interesting about 2020 is that although obviously um, you had a Democrat prevail in the White House, um, Democrat did lose ground in the House. And there were a lot of reasons for that. Um, but the Democrats who lost, um, many of them were complaining about, uh, again, when we're talking about the impact of politics, talking about the more progressive end of the party and some of the more progressive policy messages um, as it pertained to the police, health care, um, and other things. Uh, but particularly in public safety, the police, they felt, and, and the word socialism, just the idea that if anyone were embracing the term socialist, really hurt them in their district. Um, there were other factors, too, especially including the fact that Republicans um, were much more willing than Democrats to kind of go door-to-door door, door and do that retail politicking. A lot of Democrats realized that that cost them. But um, this was a real uh, center and left divide that hurt hurt people more in the center and in more uh, conservative districts, mixed districts, Republican districts, if you will. But what was also interesting is that in the places where Democrats lost their seats, they um, almost uniformly lost to Republican women, um, uh, Republican people of color. Um, and what was interesting particularly about that is that Republican women had been really losing ground for the last 10 years. And even in 2018, when you had the historic number of women um, uh, win elections uh, to make the highest number of women ever in Congress, that is the 116th Congress, Republican women actually lost ground that year. And there were so few of them. And now you're going to see um, far more uh, Republican women in the House uh, than you have in a while. And they really, what they did was, they watched the Democrats. They watched how Democrat women tried to appeal to women or appeal on certain um, certain issues, 
and kind of uh, copy that, if you will, in a Republican template and in districts where that could work. And I thought that was the most striking outcome as it pertains to women and even writ large um, what happened in the House in 2020. That is interesting. And then how how does this play out now under a Biden administration, you know, which is already looking a little more representative of the country? Uh, how does this help or hinder what more progressive women are trying to do, or maybe the Republican women you were just talking about? I mean, you know, this is all, you know, conjecture, clearly. But how does how does this start to play out, do you think? Well, Republican women will still be part of the minority in the House. And I have to say, unlike the Senate, in the House, the minority really has very little power. What will be interesting, however, this time, um, which is not a male-female issue with the Democrat, you know, Republican numbers game, particularly because Joe Biden snatched some of these Democrats from the House to put in his administration, especially if you're looking at the women in my book, Deb Holland, who is one of the two Native American women, the first ever Native American woman ever to be elected to Congress, is now going to be the Interior Secretary. Um, and there are others um, that he took for his administration. So what that means is Nancy Pelosi is going to start out, at least, with a very narrow uh, majority. She'll be able to pick up a few more seats ostensibly, um, assuming the Democrats win all those seats again where Biden took people. Um, that's kind of what they're betting on. But even then, the, the majority is going to be pretty narrow, and so there are going to have to be more um, alliances, um, if you will. Democrats are going to have to stick together um, on things that matter to them and not lose the vote, right? So um, they can't have um, moderates or um, the more progressives being spoilers on bills that they don't completely agree with. Um, and at times they're going to need Republicans probably, so that's what's going to make things kind kind of a little bit interesting. But that again is not so much a gender dynamic as a political dynamic. It, but I do think what will be also interesting is a bit of a test of the media if they pay as much attention to Republican women um, and their increase in numbers and will any of them end up being stand standouts. In some ways, the answer again I think um, maybe no, simply because they're in the minority and it's very hard to have impact there. But I think. Um, the political dynamics of middle versus progressive happen to be refracted a lot through the lens of these women because so many of them are high profile. Both the squad, AOC and Ilhan Omar, Ayanna Presley, um, and Rashida Tlaib, but also the women who um, all prevailed, who came, for example, who call themselves the badasses, and those are women who come from the national security space, who are veterans or work, you know in the CIA, um, the Department of Defense, who are more moderate members who come from Republican districts where they had defeated Republicans um, in 2018 and held on to their seat, some of them just barely, I might add, um, in 2020, and um, are even more insistent per Biden's win um, and, per, and per their difficulties and their struggles um, in prevailing in 2020. They will be even more insistent um, on being a check to the left. And that's where you're going to see the struggle play out. Again, that's more a political struggle than a gender struggle, but you will see that play out very publicly and strongly, I think, largely um, among and between women. Very interesting point. Thank you for, for raising that. Kamala Harris, obviously a first. <laughs> so let's let's right. talk about your, your take on that and, and what she brings to the table in terms of advancing other women. 
Well, you know, it's interesting that you bring that up because right after Elizabeth Warren was eliminated from the 2020 stage, I had a lot of people who I would speak to. Um, I was doing a lot of, um, you know, virtual events for my book, um, talking to people like you, and a lot of them were very frustrated that doesn't this show that women really can't advance on the national stage and women are still um, hitting this glass ceiling. And it is absolutely bizarre and ridiculous that a country like the United States never had a female president when you look around the world. Having said that, to some degree, um, I say two things. One is women have a harder time than men getting through primaries, but once they do, they win at the same rate as men in general elections. So women can and do win in elections um, in both parties, uh, mostly Democrats, but even Republican women are showing more muscle. So that's something people need to understand. And then obviously, as you mentioned, um, Vice President-elect Harris turned that on, uh, that, uh, that presumption on its head a bit because we saw her uh, you know, be a successful number two on that ticket. She was certainly not a drag on that ticket. And many people obviously assume that um, she will attempt to run for president uh, next whenever uh, Joe Biden, uh, whether he serves one term or two, decides not to, decides not to, or is not permitted to run again. She is, at this point in time, the presumptive nominee, right? So that'll be another test of that. Um, but I think, again, women are looking at her and seeing um, both a, a gender and a racial role model uh, and first, in that position, and looking to see her um, lead not just uh, politically, because obviously people have different views about whether she's progressive or whether she's actually much more moderate. There was a lot of debate about that when she was running for president, but also in the arena that we talk about when we talk about um, descriptive representation, which is people who are representing specific groups, right? And I think about Something very meaningful that I saw where she chose to go to Ward 8, which is um, um, the most, I believe, the most African-American district in the District of Columbia and one of the poorest with the least um, amount of uh, health care resources to get her COVID um, vaccine. And I think that that was um, very intentional and very interesting to, to speak to the community there and to communicate her feelings about the safety of the vaccine and the importance of getting the vaccine. And that's where descriptive representation becomes very important. When people look into the chambers of Congress, when they look um, at the vice president's office, and they see people who look like them or who look like their kids or little or younger girls and women, young women, look out and see someone like themselves, um, that is actually not just symbolic. It is quite powerful, and it does inspire the next generation of female leadership. And it resonates, I, I think, within a community. I mean, no matter what you're talking about, if an elected official goes where other elected officials have not and actually puts the action to match the words on the podium, that does carry that power I think you're, you're, you're talking about. So if she continues to act in such a manner as vice president, uh, it, could, it sounds like what you're, you're intimating is that it could be quite impactful. It can be. You know, I always see um, something, too, um, with all of these, with most of the women um, who won in 2018, some who prevailed in 2020, and I see this, too, um, with Kamala Harris, which is sometimes we don't think about generational shifts as much. Um, I think that having these, a lot of these women who are much younger, millennials and young millennials, too, um, was very interesting. They had a different take on how to run for elections, how to spend money, um, how to use digital media and so forth. And they bring a different 
generational perspective, I think having um, Vice President-elect Harris be um, a member of the often forgotten or benighted Generation X is also interesting because um, she brings a certain kind of ethos um, and cultural uh, stamp, if you will, from that generation. Um, And that's, again, not a gender thing, um, but it's meaningful to people in that age group. Um, And it says something culturally, uh, you know, um, when they see how she dresses, um, when they see how she expresses herself, they see themselves too. When you look back and, and, you know, you're looking at 2018 and the first and women reshaping Congress, it's only been two years. It's not, it's a really long, short time, right? But what work right. are the impacts still being felt or, you know, some, as you, you mentioned this earlier, are more successful than others at certain things. You gave the example of AOC with politicking versus, legis, you know, writing legislation. Where are we really seeing the reshaping from 2018, even 2016? I think you see it um, particularly in... In Congress, I think you see the impact of these women in ways that are small but meaningful, um, particularly in the types of legislation, um, the types of um, issues that they choose to promote. I think um, a couple of examples of that that are different from each other. I think a lot about Ayanna Presley and what she brought into oversight and her um, her interest in things like uh, childhood trauma. I think of Lauren Underwood's interest in, interest in a caucus that she built um, in black maternal health. Um, these are not things that were never thought of um, or even, uh, you know, considered for legislation previously, but they championed it. Um, and sometimes they had the first hearings on these issues. And so you saw that. But I would, sh- I would also point to that um, in, in the defense realm, where you had women who had attended some of the elite service academies or who served in the military, who were really pushing to change the way... Um, sex assault on these campuses uh, were adjudicated, which is something that a lot of um, Republicans, frankly, had resisted, and a lot of male members of Congress had resisted, but their voice was important um, in changing that conversation, even on a pilot program level, because um, they were women who had served and who had um, attended these academies and who gave firsthand accounts of either sexual harassment or assault that they had witnessed. So when you so lived experiences mean a lot of different things to different people, but when you can bring that um, in these different arenas, whether uh, from your own upbringing, um, your background, your socioeconomic background, your racial background, um, and your professional background, I think it does have impact. And I think um, the other side of that, which is a little different equation, a little different part of the question, is if you take it back to the squad, you know. President Trump made the decision to kind of put them in his crosshairs, right? I mean, he he used them as targets. He talked about them constantly for a while. Republicans got to the point where they were using uh, those women, in particular AOC, but Ilhan Omar as well, um, as the new face of the Democratic Party um, in a negative way, um, kind of replacing Nancy Pelosi. So that gave them um, more political power and more political import, um, whether they whether it was from their supporters or their antagonists. They became um, a, a face of certainly a certain segment of the party, and I think that's going to have um, continuing, lasting uh, political reverberations. Yeah. Um, Jennifer, I wanted to ask you something, just flipping it to female voters and the impact female voters had this time around, you know, as well as 2018. Are the female voters voting for the females? That sounds so generalized. I understand that, but I'm hoping you could address uh, female voters. It's 
depends. I mean, you still had plenty of um, white female voters who voted for Trump, right? Um, and, of course, that wasn't a male-female contest. But um, you have uh, women who do, do vote um, specifically for candidates because they're women. Um, Republican women have struggled more in primaries uh, getting female voters than Democratic women. Um, but definitely a lot of women have um, tried to carefully leverage their gender, not necessarily in saying, hey, vote for me, I'm a woman. That's not usually necessarily a popular message. Um, but they can become more relatable to female voters, to, and they also do things to appeal to them, like um, having, for example, women um, in their 50s working on their campaigns where normally you would see you know, college students, right? And so they're having uh, women who are relatable in every, in every uh, structure, every part of their campaign um, that that makes that kind of creates this permission structure for women to vote for them who might have otherwise, for example, voted for a Republican in some of these uh, more Republican districts. And it's not that um, they're just voting for them, oh, I want a woman in this job, but they're kind of seeing someone who reminds them of themselves, which is a little subtly different, you know. As you were researching for this book, and I know you have extensive experience on the Hill and everything, was there anything that kind of captivated you? Anything you came across that you said, huh, wow, that's worth further exploration, or I, you know, I didn't realize that myself? Oh, yeah, a ton of stuff. I mean, I would say I always do like to point out that um, as many firsts as we had, so many people, um, the first uh, two Muslim women, we had so many people who were the first women or the first person of color or the youngest or some combination therein who won their districts. I always thought that the two Native American women, um, Deb Holland, who we talked about earlier from New Mexico, and Sharice Davids from Kansas City, Kansas, um, I think that the impact of that on that community and the um, incredible importance to Native Americans writ large, but especially Native American women who are um, among the most undervalued and voiceless in our society um, and who have some very um, serious uh, you know, issues in those communities, to see them represented in Congress was extremely meaningful. Um, and that sometimes I don't think got as much attention as it could have. And some of that had to do with them because they were more low-key, especially Sharice David, um, and didn't necessarily make such a, a, sort of a splash in the national media. But that was really, really huge. And I don't know that got the, the attention and appreciation. I always love going to all members of Congress, going to their districts with them, because they're just so different there usually. Um, at home, often, and the issues that people care about and the things people talk to them about um, is obviously much more parochial, uh, but very um, important, right? Um, and not always parochial, by the way. Most people talk about healthcare and healthcare access and crisis everywhere you go. And having that sort of reiterated, that no matter whether you went to a super liberal, moderate, more conservative um, member of Congress, people are almost always asking about health care and the cost of health care um, and health insurance um, and drugs. That's just always out there. It's always good to be reminded of that. Um, and I think um, just, too, always being reminded, especially in places of the country where I haven't been as much, just the plurality and diversity of opinions and thoughts um, and people among voters um, who may lean very traditional or conservative on some issues, but much, you know, what we consider progressive on others. That the, the voters are complex people, and to kind of tiptoe around that and figure out um, 
uh, you know, the sweet spot in your district and how to appeal to people, it's really uh, very difficult. <laughs> um, and it's always amazing to me, people who have the energy and the um, wherewithal to learn all these policy issues, to ask people for money, to put in the uh, the elbow grease and, and you know, walk these districts uh, to serve their to serve their district and to serve their country. It's it's actually never ceases to amaze me, to be honest. What's next for you? Well, I'm actually just started covering um, military affairs in the Pentagon, um, which is kind of strange to change beats in the middle of a pandemic. But there you have it. Um, and so I'm um, I'm actually kind of shifting, especially in my focus to look at the role historically and, and now and the changing role of female veterans and women in the military. So I'm very excited to dig into that. That was New York Times reporter Jennifer Steinhauer talking about her book, The First, The Inside Story of the Women Reshaping Congress. The book will now be available in paperback. She has also written a novel about the television business and two cookbooks. Another first in sports, Bianca Smith will be joining the Boston Red Sox as a minor league coach, making her the first black woman to coach in professional baseball history. And a diversity study finds increasing numbers of women and people of color in leadership positions at the football bowl subdivision level of college athletics for 2020, though not enough to overcome a significant underrepresentation. A recent report card from the Institute for Diversity and Ethics in Sports issued slightly improved grades of a B-minus for racial hiring and a D-plus overall compared to the 2019 edition, which had issued a C for racial hiring and a D overall. The gender hiring grade in both reports was an F. The study examined positions at 130 FBS-level schools such as university presidents or chancellors, athletics directors, faculty athletics directors, and conference commissioners. It relied on data as recent as November— and submitted by the NCAA. Institute director and lead report author Richard Lapchick emphasized gains, such as women going from making up 35.7% of faculty athletics representatives in 2019 to 40.3% in 2020. That's our show for this week. Thanks to Tina Rennick for production assistance. Our executive producer is Dr. Alan Shartok. Our theme music is Glow in the Dark by Kevin Bartlett. This show is a national production of Northeast Public Radio. If you'd like to hear this show again, sign up for our podcast or visit the 51% archives on our website at wamc.org. This week's show is number 1643.